Faces stretched into images one only saw in carnival funhouses. Then the blur hit him, like the force of an exploding grenade as feet moved and bodies gyrated and the screams came at him from all directions. People pushed, pulled, and ducked to get out of the way. He remembered thinking, there's no greater chaos than when swift, violent death knocks on the door of an unsuspecting crowd. And now presidential candidate Clyde Ritter was lying by his feet on the hardwood floor shot right through the heart. King's gaze left the newly deceased and turned toward the shooter, a tall, handsome man in a tweed jacket and wearing glasses. The killer's Smith & Wesson 44 was still pointing at the spot where Ritter had been standing, as though waiting for the target to get back up so he could be shot all over again. The mass of panicked people held back the guards who were fighting to get through, so that King and the killer were the only ones at the party. King pointed his pistol at the chest of the assassin. He gave no warning, called out not one constitutional right accorded the assassin under American jurisprudence. His duty now clear, he fired once and then again, though the first time was enough. It dropped the man right where he stood. The assassin never said a word, as though he'd expected to die for what he'd done, and accepted the terms stoically like a good martyr should. And all martyrs left behind people like King, the ones who were blamed for letting it happen in the first place. Three men had actually died that day, and King had been one of them. Sean Ignatius King, born August 1, 1960, died September 26, 1996, in a place he'd never even heard of until the final day of his life. And yet, he had it far worse than the others who had fallen. They went tidily into their coffins and were forever mourned by those who loved them, or at least loved what they stood for. The soon-to-be ex-Secret Service agent King had no such luck. After his death, his unlikely burden was to keep right on living. Chapter 1 Eight Years Later The motorcade streamed into the tree-shaded parking lot where it disgorged numerous people who looked hot, tired, and genuinely unhappy. The miniature army marched toward the ugly white brick building. The structure had been many things in its time and currently housed a decrepit funeral home that was thriving solely because there was no other such facility within 30 miles. And the dead, of course, had to go somewhere. Appropriately somber gentlemen in black suits stood next to hearses of the same color. A few bereaved trickled out the door, sobbing quietly into handkerchiefs. An old man in a tattered suit that was too large for him and wearing a battered, oily Stetson sat on a bench outside the front entrance, whittling. It was just that sort of a place, rural to the hilt, stock car racing and bluegrass ballads forever. The old fellow looked up curiously as the procession passed by with a tall, distinguished-looking man ceremoniously in the middle. The elderly gent just shook his head and grinned at this spectacle, showing the few tobacco-stained teeth he had left. Then he took a nip of refreshment from a flask pulled from his pocket and returned to his artful wood carving. The woman, in her early thirties and dressed in a black pantsuit, was in step behind the tall man. In the past, her heavy pistol in the belt holster had scraped uncomfortably against her side, causing a scab. As a solution, she'd sewn an extra layer of cloth into her blouses at that spot and learned to live with any lingering irritation. 
She'd overheard some of her men joke that all female agents should wear double shoulder holsters because it gave them a buxom look without expensive breast enhancement. Yes, testosterone was alive and well in her world. Secret Service agent Michelle Maxwell was on the extreme fast track. She was not yet at the White House detail guarding the President of the United States, but she was close. Barely nine years in the service, and she was already a protection detail leader. Most agents spent a decade in the field doing investigative work before even graduating to protection detail as shift agents. Yet Michelle Maxwell was used to getting to places before other folks. This was her big preview before almost certain reassignment to the White House, and she was worried. This was an unscheduled stop, and that meant no advance team and limited backup. Yet because it was a last-minute change in plan, the plus side was no one could know they were going to be there. They reached the entrance, and Michelle put a firm hand on the tall man's arm and told him to wait while they scoped things out. The place was quiet, smelled of death and despair, and quiet pockets of misery centered on coffins in each of the viewing rooms. She posted agents at various key points along the man's path, giving feet, as it was called in service parlance. Properly done, the simple act of having a professional with a gun and communication capability standing in a doorway could work wonders. She spoke into her walkie-talkie, and the tall man, John Bruno, was brought in. She led him down the hallway as gazes from the viewing rooms wandered to them. A politician and his entourage on the campaign trail were like a herd of elephants. They could travel nowhere lightly. They stomped the earth until it hurt with the weight of the guards, chiefs of staff, spokespersons, speechwriters, publicity folks, gophers, and others. It was a spectacle that, if it didn't make you laugh, would at least cause you considerable worry about the future of the country. John Bruno.